Hello, and welcome to Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. Tonight, we continue our topic on Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. Normally, I would put some quirky things in here, but I think we should just get right to it. This is Scarlet Tavern. decided to get just right to this um because we still have quite a bit to get through and oh, i don't yes, want to make is. this a three-parter but um there is one thing i wanted to talk about before this because something happened um i don't know ben if you heard about taylor shabiznis her name is Taylor Shabusiness. Literally, that's her. Her last name is Shabusiness. Okay, you know what? This these days doesn't surprise me. Okay, so, what about this person? This is in Green Bay. Um, oh, should we get our resident uh, resident Wisconsin expert over here? This is this is going to put a great light on Wisconsin. But basically, what happened is uh, the reason I'm talking about this because today, the day of recording. Uh, she was she got convicted, um, but basically what happened is she killed her boyfriend, decapitated him, put his head in a bucket, raped him, and then dismembered his body. What? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Her name's Taylor Shabusiness. Um. Her boyfriend was Shad Therian out of Green Bay. Um, and then just, I'll read the quick article here from yesterday. <coughs> Lawyers in a Green Bay homicide decapitation case Tuesday debated whether Taylor business needed a long prison sentence or whether she deserved a chance at turning her life around after completing punishment for killing and dismembering her friend in 2022. Brown County Deputy District Attorney Caleb Saunders, who prosecuted the case, said Shabiznis told detectives that the killing happened because she liked it, and that the victim, Shad Therian, was quiet and good kid, uh, and he would always hug his dad. Saunders said Shabiznis would still have the opportunity to hug her father once he was released from state prison. Therian, the prosecutor made clear, would not be hugging family members again. Shabiznis's attorney said she was the victim of drugs she had been using as she grew older and did not receive help fighting her dependence on the substances, even when she was in jail. She's not a lost cause, Your Honor, said the attorney. Um, the county circuit court judge, Thomas Walsh, uh, it was the judge. The Her attorney was asking for less than the maximum sentence. She's going to need some treatment to process all these addiction issues. My client has a history of using mind-altering substance, but she still graduated from high school, had a baby, and held a job. Walsh expressed some sympathy for her business's battle with her demons, but said he needed to sentence her to a prison term that would protect the public from her harm. He ordered her to spend life in prison without the possibility of parole for killing Shantherian of Green Bay. 
the offense in this case can't be overstated, Walsh said before detailing the sentence. In this case, you seem to run out of superlatives in describing what happened. This crime offends human decency, it offends human dignity, it offends the human community, it really does. He added, I think there is a need to protect the public in this case. As I said, this behavior seems so removed from the human community as to be unpredictable. Where this kind of thing is possible, absolutely anything is possible, and from that, the public needs to be needs protection. She was convicted uh, July 26, um, and that jury only took 50 minutes to find her guilty. And first degree intentional homicide, third degree sexual assault, and mutilating a corpse. She had pleaded not guilty, not guilty by reason of mental disease or defects. Next day, the same jury rejected her plea that she suffered from mental illness, mental disease, or defect when she killed Therian. Two members of the family addressed the court before sentencing. Um, basically, the uncle said it's the most cowardly thing you could do, um, that she took advantage of him. And he said, I pray that you meet the same fate as your idealistic Jeffrey Dahmer. What? Yeah, that's what the uncle said to her. And then the father said, Taylor, I forgive you for what you did to my son. You made a bad choice. Shad was a wonderful child, too. Um, uh, this sounds I, like a mess. I'll, I'll, I'll be think. honest. I would not have been able. I would have been more like the uncle. Yeah. Um, uh, kids, don't do drugs and yeah. or be this kind of crazy. Yeah. Ba- basically, what happened is <coughs> Shad had gone missing. Um, and the parents were looking for him. They went into the basement, which was his bedroom in their house. And in there, something just seemed wrong. Like there was a stain on the bed. Um, and then something seemed wrong. They found a bucket covered with a towel and the mom moved the towel and she literally saw her son's face just sitting there. Uh, Then they called the cops, and uh, I watched the body cam footage. You can find the body cam footage on this. It's really interesting because the the cop walks in, looks at it, and goes, "Um, yeah, we need to, this isn't just a missing person case anymore. Everybody needs to get here now, and we need to shut this place down. And they called for a bunch of backup and all of that. But, yeah, it turns out that she... I think she she strangled him or OD'd him. Um, and then they'd smoked meth and had sex on a mattress in the basement of the house before she strangled, decapitated, and dismembered him. Um, so between her arrest and her trial in July, a number of hearings were held to discuss her mental state. Mental health evaluations were ordered. Eventually, she was it was declared that she could stay in trial and aid in her defense. And on February 14th, she attacked her attorney at the time during a hearing. Uh, That attorney was removed and replaced. Um, Then basically all the way through, it was all just more court proceedings up until July 27th. Um, and then they read they read her full conviction out um, just recently, mm-hmm. but yeah. So she's got a uh, full life sentence, no possibility of parole for everything. 
So I thought that was uh, I I that that popped up today. So I thought I would touch on it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Sha business. Sha business. Oh, what a well, last well, name. Yeah. Well, there's there's been some interesting last name uh, criminals out there, as I'm sure we'll cover in later episodes. Well, I mean, she goes to prison, and they'd be like, "What are you in here for?" It should be like none of sha business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. All right. Well. Now that that's done, let's get into the remainder of Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. Yep. So, McVeigh's original plan had been to detonate the bomb at 11 a.m., but at dawn on April 19th, 1995, he decided instead to destroy the building at 9 a.m. <clears throat> As he drove toward the Murrah Federal Building in the Ryder truck, McVeigh carried with him an envelope containing pages from the Turner Diaries, fictional account of white supremacists who ignited a revolution by blowing up the FBI headquarters at 9.15 one morning using a truck bomb. McVeigh wore a printed t-shirt with six Semper Tyrannus, thus always two tyrants. What, according to legend, Brutus said as he assassinated Julius Caesar and is also claimed to have been shouted by John Wilkes Booth immediately after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and the Tree of Liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants, from Thomas Jefferson. He also carried an envelope full of revolutionary materials that included a bumper sticker with the slogan falsely attributed to Thomas Jefferson, when the government fears the people, there is liberty, when the people fear the government, there is tyranny. Underneath, McVeigh had written, maybe now there will be liberty, with a hand-copied quote by John Locke, asserting that a man has a right to kill someone who walks, who takes away his liberty. Um, and then, just a reminder, John Locke is the father of liberalism. Yeah, or as, um, not, I'm sure liberalism is a lot different than uh, what John Locke was in his days, John Locke would probably be considered something of a middle road. He'd be more like a libertarian, probably at this point. Probably. Um, Obviously, liberalism now is so much more extreme. Uh, yeah, I'm sure John Locke would probably not have anything to do with it. <laughs> it's always interesting with these kind of guys like Timothy Convey to do this. They always carry around <laughs> material that kind of like, like it almost gets them through this. It's like, I really wonder if his conviction for that i mean by all accounts they were he, he was pretty devoted to this messed up cause of you know killing innocent people but it's always interesting he can't, they always carry around the material to like hold it close it's like yes yes i have to be reminded it's like yeah yeah uh, always found that interesting mcveigh entered oklahoma city at eight fifty a.m at 8.57 a.m., the Regency Towers apartment's lobby security camera that had recorded Nichols' pickup truck three days earlier recorded the rider truck heading toward the Murrah Federal Building. At the same moment, McVeigh lit the five-minute fuse. Three minutes later, still a block away, he lit the two-minute fuse. He parked the rider truck on a drop-off zone situated under the building's daycare center, exited, and locked the truck. As he headed to his getaway vehicle, he dropped the keys to the truck a few blocks away. At 9.02 a.m., the rider truck, containing over 4,800 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, nitromethane, and diesel fuel mixture, detonated in front of the north side of the nine-story Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. 
168 people were killed and hundreds more injured. One-third of the building was destroyed by the explosion, which created a 30-foot-wide, 8-foot-deep crater on Northwest 5th Street next to the building. The blast destroyed or damaged 324 buildings within a four-block radius and shattered glass in 258 nearby buildings. The broken glass alone accounted for 5% of the death total and 69% of the injuries outside the Murrah Federal Building. The blast destroyed or burned 86 cars around the site. The destruction of the buildings left several hundred people homeless and shut down a number of offices in downtown Oklahoma City. The explosion was estimated to have caused at least $652 million worth of damage. The effects of the blast were equivalent to over 5,000 pounds of TNT and could be heard and felt up to 55 miles away. Seismometers at the Omniplex Science Museum in Oklahoma City, 4.3 miles away, and in Norman, Oklahoma, 16.1 miles away, recorded the blast as measuring approximately 3.0 on the Richter magnitude scale. This man caused a fucking earthquake. A level 3 earthquake. Good God in heaven. Yeah. (sighs) That much explosives to cause a level 3 earthquake. Like, that is insane. Yeah, and, and, and really, honestly, to think, most of the stuff that he's made out of there, go to a farm store, like a, a legitimate farm store. Minus the nitromethane. Buy, yeah, you could buy this stuff. That's why, for anybody, we talked about how he made this and all of that. Guess what? Because of this stuff, all of that stuff is regulated. You will be found yeah. out. Yeah. You will get caught. Like, we've, I don't think we've talked about it on here, but our plan is to own a farm eventually and land. Well, I will raise chickens. The, when we have that farm and we buy this stuff, you have to show proof of, of the need for it. Mm-hmm. So we would have to show, okay, well, we have this much cattle. We have this and this and this. We need this stuff. We are growing this crops. We need this fertilizer. And honestly, now that I think about it, like it used to be back in the day when I was a kid, they used to always say, you can find anything on the internet, all the instructions, this, this, and that is on the internet. Really now, and then these days, Not anymore. you really can't do you. The information may be out there to black, like, you maybe may, black sites, but yeah. But like, let's, but like, but like, think about this back in when this is in the nineties, they, you could, you could find out how to build a diesel truck bomb, which is yeah. what he used with with the chemicals. And he was like, okay, yeah, print off here, you go, to, and he could buy stuff. These days, like you just said, you may be able to find this information, but you can't buy any of this stuff. Yeah, it's all highly, I'm... highly regulated. And that nitromethane, yeah, you... you're not getting unless you are like NASCAR. Yeah, so... Formula um, One. It's just very interesting where we how what we're we're looking at basically the cause of why <coughs> for in, in my opinion this is not a bad thing like no this isn't this isn't a bad thing like is it suck for some people in this in the agriculture business man I can't buy as much well, as I want to eh, well that's the thing is they can so they can they can mass buy it they can buy as much as they want but they also have to prove like 
your shipment would have must and i forget the exact regulations because again i never worked in this part of the federal but as far as i know you can buy as much as you want provided a the it's being shipped to a farm um and b that farm is an active farm you don't have to actively sell anything but you should have cattle crops things like that on there to justify that purchase there's a lot of there's a lot of big farms that they buy a lot of fertilizer and they're not questioned because they're also not buying extra stuff along with it yeah and so and of course yeah you're going to buy fertilizer and diesel a lot most farming equipment runs off diesel um, but, but yeah, it, it's just making it, it's all regulated just like with a lot of narcotics, um, prescription narcotics are highly regulated. Oh yeah. Even over Chemicals. the counter stuff, I, I literally just went to the pharmacy today and I found it odd. I was like, huh, I guess there's certain, uh, certain drugs that have the, the, the materials to make meth. And <laughs> yeah, um, I remember quick side note in tech school, which for those that don't know, tech school is your training after basic training in the air force. It's how you learn your job in tech school. A lot of us were under the age of 21. So we would go to the pharmacy and we would go buy cough syrup. And actually, if you go to the pharmacies around Texas now, they obviously everywhere now IDs you for cough syrup. But back and then they never did. So we would buy cases of cough syrup and people would freaking get drunk off of that. Um, But yeah, there are certain certain medications and even over the counter stuff that can and still are used to make meth in the cheap way. It's cheap crap that's going to get you killed. But I I've seen it, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's why you have to be ID'd and all of that's regulated. If you go into a store and you buy, I'm not I'm not gonna say what the product is, but if you go into a store and you buy said product and you're buying a lot of it, well, that's gonna trigger something, and it's gonna look a little suspicious. <clears throat> um. The collapse of the northern half of the building took roughly seven seconds. As the truck exploded, it first destroyed the column next to it, designated as G20, and shattered the entire glass facade of the building. The shockwave of the explosion forced the lower floors upwards before the fourth and fifth floors collapsed onto the third floor, which housed a transfer beam that ran the length of the building and was being supported by four pillars below, and was supporting that pillars that hold the upper floors. The added weight meant that the third floor gave way along with the transfer beam, which in turn collapsed, uh, caused the collapse of the building. Initially, the FBI had three hypotheses about responsibility for the bombing. International terrorist, possibly the same group that carried out the World Trade Center bombing, the original World Trade Center bombing, obviously. Um and a drug cartel carrying out an act of vengeance against DEA agents in the building, a DEA office 
and anti-government radicals attempting to start a rebellion against the federal government. <clears throat> now, McVeigh was arrested within 90 minutes of the explosion as he was traveling north on Interstate 35 near Perry in Noble County, Oklahoma. Oklahoma State Trooper Charlie Hanger stopped McVeigh for driving his yellow 1977 Mercury Marquis without a license plate and arrested him for having a concealed weapon. Number one, I want to get my hands on that car because... I'll take a Mar 77 marquee any day. For his home address, McVeigh falsely claimed he resided at Terry Nichols' brother's James's house in Michigan. After booking McVeigh into jail, Trooper Hanger searched his patrol car and found a business card which had been concealed by McVeigh after being handcuffed. Written on the back of the card, which was from a Wisconsin military surplus store, were the words TNT at $5 a stick, need more. The card was later used as evidence during McVeigh's trial. So here's here's the thing. You ditch the keys, you have a getaway vehicle, all of that. You have a fucking card that says, hey, here's here's where I'm buying TNT that I'm going to need more of to blow this shit up. You don't think to throw that shit away? Well, it's also like you mentioned, I've mentioned this before, I told you before, um, stupid criminals, uh, you just mentioned the first World Trade Center building. You know how they got caught? The 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 guy who parked returned the van, his U-Haul. No, he or, returned. Yeah, to get, yeah. He returned to the U-Haul office in New Jersey to get his deposit back for the van that he used to to blow up the building. <clears throat> yeah. I, well, it's oh and it's it's the same thing with like, um. Let's see. Well, you look at a certain serial killer we haven't touched on yet, um, Ted Bundy. You look at Bundy, that man could not get away from Volkswagen Beetles. If he just would have driven a different car through Florida and not killed... Not killed people. People at a college, at a sorority house... Um, but if he would have driven something different than a beetle, he probably wouldn't have gotten caught. Yeah. He got away once already. Yeah. So, and again, we, we will get into Ted Bundy cause that's my second favorite serial killer. So well, I know how favorite sounds, but, um, he's one of your, he's one of the <clears throat> most, he is definitely my one second of most interesting. interesting. Um, now, while investigating the VIN on an axle of the truck used in the explosion and the remnants of the license plate, federal agents were able to link the truck to a specific rider rental agency in Junction City, Kansas. Maybe you should have scratched the VIN off, um, and taken the license plates off. To but be fair... To be fair, I mean, the amount of explosives, I'm sure they thought there would just be nothing left. Yeah, but that's metal, though. That, like... Mm, I don't know. <laughs> 4,000 pounds of TNT, that's a lot. Um, using a sketch created with the assistance of Eldon Elliott, owner of the agency, the agents were able to implicate, implicate McVeigh on the bombing. McVeigh was also identified by Leah McGowan of the Dreamland Motel, who remembered him parking a large yellow rider truck in the lot. 
McVeigh had signed in under his real name at the hotel using an address that matched the one on his forged license and charge sheet at Perry Police Station. Use his real name at the fucking hotel. Are you that dumb? I, I like everything about this. The rest of this was so smart. The way he constructed everything, all of that was really smart. He, he really, so he really seemed to have thought that, okay, I got the bomb. Yay. You do realize they're going to investigate you, right? They're going to investigate it. Yeah. Or, or did you read the Turner diary so much that you thought it would just play out just like there? Because I I've read excerpts of the Turner Diaries, like I've never actually bought this book. I, I actually I, book. I don't think I'll buy it, but if I can find it for free, I'll probably read it. Because I don't want to support it, but I would like yeah. to read it to see how it is. Well, on Wikipedia, they basically break the whole plot down, and essentially, that's what, in the book. It's like, okay, you guys are just committing all these horrific acts against the U.S. government, and the government's not doing anything. They're just sitting there and taking it. It it really seems like he thought he's like, well, if I plant this bomb, it'll do this, and it will they won't do anything because they'll be so devastated and demoral. It's like, dude, they're they're gonna find you, especially when you leave a nice giant breadcrumbs right to to you. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to see if we can find it for free because I'm sure you would read it as long as you don't have to pay for it. Because obviously yeah, I... we don't want to support this. Keep in mind, <laughs> folks, we would read it just for yeah, research, just because exactly. I w just I want to see how like, <coughs> what kind of twisted mind goes. I'm a writer, and I like to write. I I can't imagine putting that kind of level of vileness and twisted well, hatred into. A, a and how page. many people have used this Too book many. as motivation? Too many. So too many. Um. <clears throat> now. Before signing his real name at the motel, McVeigh had used false names for his transactions. However, McGowan noted people are so used to signing their own name that when they go to sign a phony name, they almost always go to write and then look up for a moment as if to remember the new name they want to use. That's what McVeigh did. And when he looked up, I started talking to him and it threw him. Ah. <laughs> uh. After an April 21st, 1995 court hearing on the gun charges, <clears throat> but before McVeigh's release, federal agents took him into custody as they continued their investigation into the bombing. Rather than talk to investigators about the bombing, McVeigh demanded an attorney, which is your right for everybody listening. If you are ever questioned by the police, do not speak until you have your attorney present. I've said that before. I will always say it. Do not speak to the... And this is coming from former cops that are telling you this. Do not speak to the police or anybody without your lawyer present. Yep. Because, unfortunately, there are cops that will take advantage of that. There is a... So, I'm going to tell something that people, they watch TV and they think that this is how it all works. You get arrested, okay? People think that as soon as you get arrested, your rights have to be read to you. It's not how it works. Your rights, the Miranda rights, do not have to be read to you 
until you are being questioned about a crime. When you are going to say something that could possibly incriminate yourself, that's when your rights are read to you. For those that don't know, your Miranda rights go something like this. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you at no cost to you. Um, during questioning, you have the right to stop at any time to request the presence of, a, of an attorney. At that time, all questioning will stop until your attorney is present. And it it every agency has different variations of how they say it, but that's the general theme of it. Um, and basically, it's protecting you from self-incrimination. Um, however, there is this magical thing that we have co we as cops love called spontaneous utterance. <laughs> spontaneous utterance. I have gotten a lot of people on that. I got a I got <laughs> someone on that too. It was, it was hilarious. She didn't even. I was just like, oh god. So spontaneous utterance basically. I've read you your Miranda rights. You say, oh, I don't want to talk. I don't even, technically, I don't even have to read you your Miranda rights with a spontaneous utterance. It just happens at any time. It, I have not asked you a question. It could just be like, hey, are you okay? Are the handcuffs too tight? And you just say, oh, I, I didn't mean to kill that person. Boom. Spontaneous utterance. No questions were asked. No incriminating questions were asked of you. Therefore, you just incriminated yourself and that spontaneous utterance can be used in a court of law and cannot be dismissed because it is a spontaneous utterance. I had the person I was, I was just informing them of what happened and then they just like, really? Then blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, there goes me getting off early today. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all that being said, do not talk to law enforcement. Keep your mouth shut until you have a lawyer. Um, that is your right. I highly suggest you use that right. Um, <clears throat> so, having been tipped off by the arrival of police and helicopters that a bombing suspect was inside, a restless crowd began to gather outside the jail. While McVeigh's request for a bulletproof vest or transport by helicopter were denied, authorities did use a helicopter to transport him from Perry to Oklahoma City. Federal agents obtained a warrant to search the house of McVeigh's father, Bill, after which they broke down the door and wired the house and telephone with listening devices. FBI investigators used the resulting information gained along with the fake address McVeigh had been using to begin their search for the Nichols brothers, Terry and James. On April 21st, 1995, Terry Nichols learned that he was being hunted and turned himself in. Should always do that. Investigators discovered incriminating evidence at his home, ammonium nitrate and blasting caps, the electric drill used to drill out the locks on the quarry, books on bomb making, a copy of Hunter, which is a 1985 novel by William Luther Pierce, the founder and chairman of the National Alliance, a white nationalist group, and a hand-drawn yep. map. Uh, go ahead. Luther Pierce also is the author of Turner Diaries as well. Correct. Um, and a hand-drawn map of downtown Oklahoma City on which the Murrah building and the spot where McVeigh's getaway car were was hidden were marked. Would have think he would have burned those. I, 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 the moment Timothy McVeigh left, 
with oh, yeah. all of like, okay, I'm gonna go set the bomb off. Okay, all right, bye. see ya, burn. Yeah. That's what I would have done. Um, after a nine-hour interrogation, Terry Nichols was formally held in federal custody until his trial. On April 25th, 1995, James Nichols was also arrested, but he was released after 32 days due to lack of evidence. McVeigh's sister, Jennifer, was accused of illegally mailing ammunition to McVeigh, but she was granted immunity in exchange for testifying against him. Guys, you cannot mail ammunition. It is illegal. Ammunition must be distributed through an official uh, seller. Don't mail ammunition to anybody. A Jordanian-American man traveling from his home in Oklahoma City to visit family in Jordan on April 19, 1995, was detained and questioned by the FBI at the airport. Several Arab-American groups criticized the FBI for racial profiling and the subsequent media coverage for publicizing the man's name. Attorney General Reno denied claims that the federal government relied on racial profiling, while FBI Director Louis, uh, Luis J. Free told a, uh, told a press conference that the man was never a suspect and was instead treated as a witness to the Oklahoma City bombing who assisted the government's investigation. That's just a backpedal and cover my ass statement. Um, he was most definitely racially profiled. Um, happens all the time. So one of my one of my childhood friends is half Pakistani and half white. Born in Chicago, born born in the United States, dark skinned. His last name's Khan. Every time we went to the airport, he was singled out and searched. Every single time. Doesn't have an accent. Doesn't have anything. Unfortunately, due to nine eleven. This is what happens because there are those profiles that fit. And I, I will openly admit that everybody, I think, I think just about everybody being human has profiled people to an extent, not saying you racially profiled them or you hate them for this. But you see somebody and you go, oh, that person's a druggie. They may not be. They may just be having a rough day. But I would say 95% of people have profiled somebody. Um, and it's just, it's human nature to do that, unfortunately. Um, but when it comes to things like this, it's not necessarily okay. <clears throat> um. So an estimated 646 people were inside the building when the bomb exploded. By the end of day, uh, by the end of the day, 14 adults and six children were confirmed dead, and over 100 injured. The toll eventually reached 168 confirmed dead, not including an unmatched left leg that could have belonged to an unidentified 169th victim. Most of the deaths resulted from the collapse of the building rather than the bomb blast itself. Those killed included those killed included 163 who were in the Alfred P. Mola Federal Building, one person in the Athenian Building, one woman in a parking lot across the street, a man and a woman and a man and a woman in the Oklahoma Water Resources Building, 
and a rescue worker struck on the head by debris. The victim ranged from three months old to 73 years and included three pregnant women. This is why Timothy McVeigh's a piece of shit. This is why he, he got killed. Exactly. Why he was executed. Of the dead, 108 worked for the federal government. DEA had five. Secret Service had six. Department of Housing and Urban Development had 35. Department of Agriculture had seven. The Customs Office had two. Department of Transportation and Federal Highway Administration had 11. General Services Administration had two. And the Social Security Administration had 40. Eight of the federal government victims were federal law enforcement agents. So, 108 that worked for the federal government. Only eight of them that died were law enforcement agents. The rest were civilians. Yes, truly, the tools and instruments of a tyrannical government, I say with heavy, heavy sarcasm. Of those law enforcement agents, four were members of the Secret Service, two were members of Customs, and one was a member of the DEA. And one was a member of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Um, so, Depa Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, for those that don't know, because they're not really well known, that's HUD. Um, a lot of people get help from HUD, but they they develop laws for federal housing and urban development. Um, and they do have federal agents, um, that are armed federal agents. And actually what a lot of people don't know is so does the IRS. Um, you can be a federal armed federal agent with the IRS. It's newer, um, because what was happening is IRS agents were going to audit places and people were starting to threaten them and try and shoot them and all of that. So they started sending them out with armed agents. So you can now be a armed agent with the IRS. Easy job. Um, so six of the victims were U.S. military personnel. Because um, keep in mind that there was a recruitment center there two members wasn't this meps yes this, not, I, I, this was meps no no this this wasn't meps this was it was a recruitment office it was a recruitment office there um so the these guys were all recruiters that were killed um which i mean of any military member to be taken. Recruiters are close, cl as close to politicians as you can get. They, they lie to you so much. Eh, everybody uh, lies to us in the military. <clears throat> two, two were members of the army. Two were members of the air force and two were members of the Marine Corps. The victims also included 19 children of whom 15 were in the America's Kids Daycare Center. The bodies of 168 victims were identified at a temporary morgue set up at the scene. 
A team of 24 identified the victims using full body x-rays, dental exams, fingerprinting, blood tests, and DNA testing. More than 600, 680 people were injured. The majority of the injuries were abrasions, severe burns, and bone fractures. McVeigh later acknowledged the casualty, saying, I didn't define the rules of engagement in this conflict. The rules, if not written down, are defined by the aggressor. It was brutal, no holds barred. Women and kids were killed at Waco and Ruby Ridge. You put back in the government's faces exactly what they're giving out. He later stated, I wanted the government to hurt like the people of Waco and Ruby Ridge had. Well, guess what, you piece of shit? I'm pretty sure that those 19 children did not work for the federal fucking government. This is a sad, pathetic man who himself on make himself feel can't hear you and was i coming through no okay uh this is basically a sad pathetic person who who attached himself to a cause in order to make himself feel more important and i don't think he would have cared he cared who he hurt oh the federal government hurt all those other people yeah maybe they did as we've seen in previous episodes maybe the government did but i'm pretty sure planting a bomb right underneath a daycare center does not make you a hero or start a revol it's going to start some glorious revolution yeah so yeah good job buddy yeah job. so so there's there's rules of engagement in war we call their ROEs one of the ROEs that we are given as American military are that unless you are actively being engaged by them, women and children are off limits. We, we do not do that because they are typically helpless. Again, if they're actively engaging us because especially during the start of Iraqi freedom, Al Qaeda was recruiting 12, 13 year old kids for their army. But and unfortunately, those kids were being killed because they weren't trained. Um, and I can't imagine the military members, if you were listening and you had to do that, I can't imagine what you deal with today. And let's also remember, this isn't a war. Timothy McVeigh is not exactly. in a war. He is not, a, he is not an armed combatant in a trench fighting a, an adversary with like machine guns and mortar fire. This the downtown this is a federal building that from all intents and purposes was more akin to a bureaucratic building that you go for your social security checks and your hud assistance whatever issues you got going on this is not yeah they seem to have had some law enforcement offices but and from what i understood there was a lot of coordination being done out of here for when Waco was there. I guess this this building was one of the point of contacts, a uh, little point buildings for uh, the Waco siege. But other than that, this is it. It wasn't the main hub. This wasn't like all the forces no. of evil and whatever are gathering it, here. <clears throat> this was just one of many buildings used, and it was probably the easiest one because it's Oklahoma City. Who's gonna bomb Oklahoma City? Well, and and here's the thing is. 
there are many aspects to the different three-letter agencies. Um, FBI, DEA, all of that. In this building, most of them were pencil pushers. They do not go out in the field. They don't see action. Yes, this may have been used during Waco, um, but it's a central federal hub. Typically in these places, there's not even a detainment facility in these. It is just a place where you can go have a secure meeting because it's a secured building. Um, you typically won't see a ton of federal agents. I know in my hometown, there's actually an FBI field office. And and I, I come from a small town, but there's an FBI field office not that far. And uh, there's also a U.S. Marshal's office there as well. But most of the people that are there are just pencil pushers. There were a few agents there, but they were probably coming in for either debriefings. They were coming in. Hell, they're probably coming in to say hi to a couple friends. Like something that simple. I believe I saw in a documentary by PBS. And uh, if anybody out there finds this documentary on it, you should do it. Um, I believe at one point, either in the, there was a water board meeting going on at the time that this was happening at the bombing. So just kind of goes to show you, this isn't a hub of anybody, anything other than your middle management bureaucrats in the federal government going about their, the normal business of government and making sure everything goes smoothly. At 9.03 a.m., the first of over 1,800 911 calls related to the bombing was received by Emergency Medical Services Authority, also known as EMSA. By that time, EMSA ambulances, police, and firefighters had heard the blast and were already headed to the scene. Nearby civilians who had also witnessed or heard the blast arrived to assist the victims and emergency workers. Within 23 minutes of the bombing, the State Emergency Operations Center, SEOC, was set up consisting of representatives from the State Departments of Public Safety, Human Services, Military, Health, and Education. Assisting the SEAC were agencies including the National Weather Service, because yes, they actually, believe it or not, people, the National Weather Service has armed federal agents that are cops. You can be a weather cop. I can't, so I still can't believe that. I, I, I heard remember that. Remember that, that, remember that video I showed you where the, the kid claimed to be a cop for the weather service and they found all no, the, they never, found I, all the, yeah, we watched it cause they found the two vests in his trunk and all of that. I'll, I'll have to show it to you again. Cause we I, watched it. Um, yeah. but yeah, you, you can be a federal agent with the national weather service, believe it or not. Um, eh. So, the National Weather Service, the Air Force, the Civil Air Patrol, CAP. It's a CAP is a great thing, especially if you're a veteran. They, it's a really cool thing to kind of stay there. A lot, a lot of your uh, Civil Air Patrol um, has a lot of your like Korean and Vietnam vets in it. Um, it's a it's a really cool thing to kind of stay within the community and help. Um, and the American Red Cross. Immediate assistance also came from 465 members of the Oklahoma National Guard, 
who arrived within the hour to provide security and from members of the Department of Civil Engineering Management. Now that civil engineering management, for, so what those guys are there for is to basically look at the building and say, all right, this building's stable, this is how it collapsed, blah, 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 blah. Civil engineers make cities run, basically. For I don't know if there's, I would assume there's civil engineering in every country, but civil engineering is huge here. So for those that don't know what that is, that they, they basically help a city run. They, they tell you where to build, how to build, and figure out how to do it economically. Um, but civil engineers, especially in the military, they, they, can tell, they can look at a building and say, all right, it was bombed this way, this is how it fell, blah, 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 blah. Um, so they're, it's actually a really cool part to be in. Uh, Terrence Yeeke and Jim Ramsey from the Oklahoma City Police Department were among the first officers to arrive at the site. The EMS command post was set up almost immediately following the attack and oversaw triage, treatment, transportation, and decontamination. A simple plan objective was established. Treatment and transportation of the injured was to be done as quickly as possible. Supplies and personnel to handle a large number of patients was needed immediately. The dead needed to be moved to a temporary morgue until they could be transferred to the coroner's office, and measures for a long-term medical operation needed to be established. The triage center was set up near the Murrah building, and all the wounded were directed there. 210 patients were transported from the primary triage center to nearby hospitals within the first couple of hours following the bombing. Within the first hour, 50 people were rescued from the Murrah Federal Building. Victims were sent to every hospital in the area. The day of the bombing, 153 people were treated at St. Anthony's Hospital, eight blocks from the blast. Over 70 people were treated at Presbyterian Hospital, 41 people were treated at University Hospital, and 18 people were treated at Children's Hospital. Temporary silences were observed at the blast site so that the sensitive listening devices capable of detecting human heartbeats could be used to locate survivors. In some cases, limbs had to be amputated without anesthetics, avoided because of the potential to induce shock, in order to free those trapped under rubble. The scene had to be periodically evaluated as, or evacuated as the police received tips claiming that other bombs had been planted in the building. Now that part right there. Amputating without drugs. Because, for those that don't know, when you are in pain like that and the you have an issue with blood flow things like that um and you experience significant trauma if you are given something to dull the pain that can send you into a state of shock and can ultimately kill you so to keep that from happening they didn't do that and they just cut off limbs so they are sitting there with bone saws cutting off people's limbs while they're fully aware of everything going on and can feel all of it. The, I mean, I, this was one of the biggest until 9-11. Once 9-11 yeah, once happened, of course, I, it got worse. I remember this as a little kid, like, just seeing about it because I have family in Oklahoma, not in Oklahoma City, but in Tulsa, but of course, we hear Oklahoma, we call them, what's going on? And I remember as a little kid just asking, what's going on? Like, 
I was oh, I was still really young that nobody told me what was going on, but other than like some people got hurt in Oklahoma, but but you know everyone you know, I was like our my family so and so are they okay? I'm like yes they're fine. Okay, and I watched off. I went off to watch cartoons. <clears throat> um, at 10:28 a.m., rescuers found what they believed to be a second bomb. Some rescue workers refused to leave until police ordered mandatory evacuation of a four-block area around the site. The device was determined determined to be a three-foot-long tow missile used in the training of federal agents and bomb-sniffing dogs. Um. So, for those that don't know, tow missiles were, we still use them to this day. Um, they are basically an anti-tank missile. Um, and highly regulated, but they, they, this would be a dud, it would be inert, um, and this is trained to, this is there to help train everybody. Um, although actually inert, like I said, it had been marked live in order to mislead arms traffickers in a planned law enforcement sting. On examination, the missile was determined to be inert and relief efforts resumed 45 minutes later. The last survivor, a 15-year-old girl found under the base of the collapsed building, was rescued at around 7 p.m. In the days following the blast, over 12,000 people participated in relief and rescue operations. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, activated 11 of its urban search and rescue task forces, bringing in 665 rescue workers. One nurse was killed in the rescue attempt after she was hit on the head by debris and 26 other rescuers were hospitalized because of various injuries. 24 canine units and out-of-state dogs were brought in to search for survivors and bodies in the building debris. In an effort to recover additional bodies, 100 to 350 short tons of rubble were removed from the site each day from April 24th to 29th. Rescue and recovery efforts were concluded at 12.05 a.m. on May 5th, by which time the bodies of all but three of the victims had been recovered. For safety reasons, the building was initially slated to be demolished shortly afterward. McVeigh's attorney, Stephen Jones, filed a motion to delay the demolition until the defense team could examine the site in preparation for the trial. At 7.02 a.m. on May 23rd, more than a month after the bombing, the Murrah Federal Building was demolished. The EMS command center remained active and was staffed 24 hours a day until the demolition. The final three bodies to be recovered were those of two credit union employees and a customer. For several days after the building's demolition, trucks hauled away 800 short tons of debris from the site. Some of the debris was used as evidence in the conspirators' trials, incorporated into memorials, donated to local schools, or sold to raise funds for the relief efforts. The national humanitarian response was immediate, and in some cases even overwhelming. Large number of items such as wheelbarrows, bottled water, helmet lights, knee pads, rain gear, and even football helmets were donated. The sheer quantity of such donations caused logistical and inventory control problems till drop-off centers were set up to accept and sort the goods. Oklahoma Restaurant Association, which was holding a trade show in the city, 
assisted rescue workers by providing 15,000 to 20,000 meals over 10 days. Um, the Salvation Army served over 100,000 meals and provided over 100,000 ponchos, gloves, hard hats, and knee pads to rescue workers. Local residents and those from further afield responded to the request for blood donations. Of the over 9,000 units of blood donated, 131 were used. The rest were stored in blood banks. So this right here, I I get kind of chills when I talk about that um, because I I created a post on our social media um, about 9-11 because obviously we just had the anniversary of 9-11. Um, when you have something tragic like this happen, the day after, in this case days and days after there's something that it does to the people of the country um in in the case of 9-11 i i said we need to be the citizens of the united states that existed on september 12th because in a country right now that's so divided and even then it was getting divided so much stuff going on coming together like this all these donations um you you literally had i mean fema is, and the red cross are that is their job to donate stuff the restaurant association it's not their job to feed these people that's not what they're there for they were there for a conference but no they decided to stop what they were doing and go donate all of this food to these people um, football helmets, all of this stuff, all of this stuff was donated by good Samaritans that just wanted to help the community. The, it was 9,000 units of blood. That is insane. Um, and again, we didn't see anything like that till nine 11, but when we're talking about this, I want I want people to think about what was just said. And same thing with September 12th. Think about how our country was on the days after. And I just implore people to try and be those kind of members of society. Um, so at 9.45 a.m., Governor Frank Keating declared a state of emergency and ordered all non-essential workers in the Oklahoma City area to be released from their duties for their safety. President Bill Clinton learned about the bombing at around 9.30 a.m. while he was in a meeting with the Turkish Prime Minister Tansu Seler at the White House. Before addressing the nation, President Clinton considered grounding all planes in the Oklahoma City area to prevent the bombers from escaping by air, but decided against it. At 4 p.m., President Clinton declared a federal emergency in Oklahoma City and spoke to the nation. Ben, can you do a Bill Clinton impression? I did not have <laughs> sexual relations with that woman. Yeah. The bombing in Oklahoma City was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. 
it was an act of cowardice and it was evil. The United States will not tolerate it and I will not allow the people of this country to be intimidated by evil cowards. I also did not have sexual relations with that woman. But, um, was this, this was before the Monica Lewinsky incident. Um, oh yeah, it's long before, but uh, old Billy's infidelities were <laughs> going on long before this. Because this was, what, nine, 95 so yeah this is long before um he ordered that flags for all federal buildings be flown at half staff for 30 days in remembrance of the victims four days later on april 23rd 1995 clinton spoke from oklahoma city no major federal financial assistance was made available to the survivors of oklahoma city bombing but the murrah fund set up in the wake of the bombing attracted over 300,000 in federal grants over $40 million was donated to the city to aid disaster relief and to compensate the victims. Funds were initially distributed to families who needed it to get back on their feet, and the rest was held in trust for longer-term medical and psychological needs. By 2005, $18 million of the donations remained, some of which was earmarked to provide a college education for each of the 219 children who lost one or both parents in the bombings. A committee chaired by Daniel Kurtenbach of Goodwill Industries provided financial assistance to the survivors. International reactions to the bombing varied. President Clinton received many messages of sympathy, including those from Queen Elizabeth II of the UK, Yasser Arafat of the Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, and P.V. Yeah, right. I bet you he wouldn't do that today. Um, and P.V. Narasimha Rayal of India. Iran condemned the bombing as an attack on innocent people, but also blamed the U.S. government's policies for inciting it. Other condolences came from Russia, Canada, Australia, the U.N., and the European Union, among other nations and organizations. Several countries offered assistance in both the rescue efforts and the investigation, France, who, of course, everybody knows we have been allied with France for since the beginning of America. Um, France offered to send a special rescue unit and Israeli prime minister at the time, Yitzhak Rabin, offered to send agents with anti-terrorist expertise to help the investigation. And, of course, Israel, no stranger to terroristic plots. Uh, they've been dealing with terrorism for their entire existence. Um, President Clinton denied, declined Israelis, uh, Israel's offer, believing that accepting it would increase anti-Muslim sentiments and endanger Muslim Americans. In the wake of the bombing, the national media focused on... Isn't this... This isn't long before Benjamin Netanyahu took over, isn't it? Uh, the, uh, no, no, this is, um, this is before him. He was Well, yeah, 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 I, I'm saying, I don't think this was long before, though. Um, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, he's, he's been in... He's only been prime minister for a little bit, but he's been in the government for a while. Um, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, 
has been yeah he's been involved i mean he actually almost was a participant in one of the other greatest uh hostage rescues uh operation thunderbolt uh where unfortunately his brother was killed yeah. uh, um that's something we'll probably cover in a later episode that i will be hosting but uh yeah no benjamin netanyahu has been involved in a lot of stuff great government for a great leader for israel i will obviously he has his he he's very opinionated but one of the best prime ministers israel's ever had um In the wake of the bombing, the national media focused on the fact that 19 of the victims had been babies and children, many in the daycare center. At the time of the bombing, there were 100 daycare centers in the U.S. and 7,900 federal buildings. And now, think about this. The reason, the, the reason that a lot of these daycares were put in these federal buildings is because they're supposed to be safe. They're, they're supposed to be a safe place for these kids. They don't have to worry. The parents don't have to worry. Um, McVeigh later stated that he was unaware of the daycare center when choosing the building as a target, and if he had known, it might have given me pause to switch targets. That's a large amount of collateral damage. I call bullshit because they scouted this building. Yeah. There's you didn't know there no was a, way. Like a daycare? I, if I remember correctly, hold on. Let me let me look up the old pictures of the building. Um, but if I remember correctly, I'm trying to find pictures. Bef- it's really hard to find pictures before the bombing. Uh, I mean, honestly, the most pictures I ever found of the building were like the black and white from the seventies or whenever yeah. this building was built. So yeah, it's really, I don't believe. Really hard to see. I don't think it was. Listed, unless though. unless Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols literally just drove around the outside, I don't think. Unless again, unless there was a sign or something they that was there on the building. I don't believe there was like a thing that says, hey, daycare center. I think it's almost something you had to have gone inside and known it was there. Yeah, but but you're you're telling me that the entire time that they are scouting the building out, they're not seeing women and like families go in there. The children walk in with the parents and then Uh the parents come out and there's no children. I put two and two together. No, no, I totally agree. I mean, this, I mean, think about it. This, this is a, despite being a government building, this is a soft target. This is oh, not, yeah. this is not one federal plaza in, in New York City. This is not the J. Edgar Hoover building. This is a, this is the type of, we have buildings like this in Buffalo. We, are, no, this we is, have a building like this in like 10 streets away. Yeah, it's it may be the federal a federal building. It may even have a couple of offices for some like uh um for some actual three letter agencies, but it's not their main office. It's no. just some place where the the paper pushers go and just work and so that they're not taking up space at the main office. Yeah. You know, th- this is this is a soft target. This is not a high level high security target i mean the witnesses who the survivors there remember seeing mcveigh pulling up with the truck thinking oh he must work there yeah, like they didn't give him a second a delivery thought. whatever 
yeah so they were like oh okay it's whatever you know this this is not on, this was not on anybody's radar yeah and i mean this is a type like you said this is the type of building you go and get your soul, cash your social security check go to the or, bank there was a bank in there yeah so yeah i don't buy that oh i didn't know maybe i would have stopped i'm like no you wouldn't you would have done it either way. You would exactly. have killed those people because your mind was so warped and twisted by your little cause that you wouldn't have cared if Mother Teresa was running a soup kitchen there. Exactly. And what I'm about to say right now kind of coincides with what we just said. The FBI stated that McVeigh scouted the interior of the building in December 1994 and likely knew of the daycare center before the bombing. This man walked around in the interior of the building. You saw the daycare. I highly doubt the daycare is on anywhere but the first floor. Yeah. Yeah, bullshit. It would make the most sense to put the daycare on the first floor. He knew about it. He didn't care. He was going to plant that bomb one way or the other. Yeah. In April 2010, Joseph uh, Hartzler, the prosecutor at McVeigh's trial... Question how McVeigh could have decided to pass over a prior Target building because of a florist shop, but at the Murr building not, quote-unquote, notice that there's a child daycare center there, that there was a credit union there, and a social security office. Schools across the country were dismissed early and ordered closed. I'll be honest, I was three years old. I wasn't in school at this point, so I don't... I was. I don't remember getting dismissed. I don't this. I don't remember this either. I think be, us being in New York so far away, I don't think this really... I don't know if this did this for us, but also I was in a private school, so it may not have been yeah. for us. A photograph of firefighter Chris Fields emerging from the rubble with infant, infant Bailey Allman, who later died in a nearby hospital was reprinted worldwide and became a symbol of the attack. The photo, taken by bank employee Charles H. Porter IV, won the 1996 Pulitzer Prize for spot news photography and appeared on newspapers and magazines for months following the attack. Aaron Alman Koch, I'm assuming it's Koch, K-O-K, mother of Bailey Allman, said of the photo, it was very hard to go to stores because they were in the checkout aisle. It was always there. It was devastating. Everybody had seen my daughter dead. And that's all she became to them. She was a symbol. She was the girl in the fireman's arms. But she was a real person that got left behind. The images and media reports of children dying terrorized many children who, as demonstrated by later research, showed symptoms of PTSD. Children became a primary focus of concern in the mental health response to the bombing, and many bomb-related services were delivered to the community, young and old alike. These services were delivered to public schools of Oklahoma and reached approximately 40,000 students. One of the first organized mental health activities in Oklahoma City was a clinical study of middle and high school students conducted seven weeks after the bombing. The study focused on middle and high school students who had no connection or relationship to the victims of the bombing. The study showed that these students, although deeply moved by the event and showing a sense of vulnerability on the matter, had no difficulty with the demands of school and home life, as contrasted to those who were connected to the bombing and its victims who had PTSD. Children were also affected through the loss of parents in the bombing. Many children lost one or both parents in the blast, with a reported seven children losing their only remaining parent. Children of the disaster have been raised by single parents, foster parents, and other family members. 
Adjusting to the loss has made these children suffer psychologically and emotionally. One orphan who was interviewed, of the at least 10 orphan children, reported sleepless nights and an obsession with death. President Clinton stated that after seeing the images of babies being pulled from the wreckage, he was beyond angry and wanted to put his fist through the television. Clinton and his wife Hillary requested that aides talk to the child care specialist about how to communicate with children regarding the bombing. President Clinton said to the nation three days after the bombing, I don't want our children to believe something terrible about life and the future and grown-ups in general because of this awful thing. Most adults who are good people, most adults are good people who want to protect our children in their childhood, and we are going to get through this. On April 22, 1995, the Clintons spoke in the White House with over 40 federal agency employees and their children, and and in a live nationwide television and radio broadcast addressed their concerns. Hundreds of news trucks and members of the press arrived at the site to cover the story. Press immediately noticed that the bombing took place on the second anniversary of the Waco incident. Many initial news stories hypothesized that the attack had been undertaken by Islamic terrorists, such as those who had masterminded the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Some media reported that the investigators wanted to question men of Middle Eastern appearance. Hamzi Mograbi, chairman of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, blamed the media for harassment of Muslims and Arabs that took place after the bombing. As a rescue effort wound down, the media interest shifted into investigation, arrests, and trials of Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, and on the search for an additional suspect named John Doe No. 2. Several witnesses claimed to have seen a second suspect who did not resemble Nichols with McVeigh. Those who expressed sympathy for McVeigh typically described his deed as an act of war, as in the case of Gore Vidal's essay, The Meaning of Timothy McVeigh. The FBI led the official investigation known as OK Bomb, with Weldon L. Kennedy acting as special agent in charge. Kennedy oversaw 900 federal, state, and local law enforcement personnel, including 300 FBI agents, 200 officers from the Oklahoma City Police Department, 125 members of the Oklahoma National Guard, and 55 officers from the Oklahoma Department of Public Safety. Um, the crime task force was deemed the largest since the investigation into the assassination of John F. Kennedy. OK Bomb was the largest criminal case in America's history, with FBI agents conducting 28,000 interviews, massing 3.5 short tons of evidence, and collecting nearly 1 billion pieces of information. Federal Judge Richard Paul Mash ordered that the venue for the trial be moved from Oklahoma City to Denver, Colorado, ruling that the defendants would be unable to receive a fair trial in Oklahoma. The investigation led to separate trials and convictions of McVeigh, Nichols, and Fortier. And I think this is smart of the judge Mm -hmm. because this was so tragic that you have a jury trial. That's what's going to happen. These jurors are going to find him guilty no matter what, even if he was innocent because they're pissed. Hell, hell, they probably, the jury, if you probably give the jury time, they probably would have built a gallows to hang him just like, uh, just, just like, Oklahoma's frontier days in the old West. They probably would have been like, okay, take him out back. Yeah. Hang him. Put him on a horse, tie him to a tree, be done. Let's let's get this over with. Now. Um 
getting into the trials. Opening statement in McVeigh's trial began on April 24, 1997. The United States was represented by a team of prosecutors led by Joseph Hartzler. In his opening statement, Hartzler outlined McVeigh's motivations and the evidence against him. McVeigh, he said, had developed a hatred of the government during his time in the Army after reading the Turner Diaries. His beliefs were supported by what he saw as the militia's ideological opposition to, to increases in taxes and the passage of the Brady Bill and were further reinforced by the Waco and Ruby Ridge incidents. The prosecution called 137 witnesses, including Michael Fortier and his wife Lori and McVeigh's sister Jennifer McVeigh, all of whom testified to confirm McVeigh's hatred of the government and his desire to make to take militant action against it. Both Fortiers testified that McVeigh had told them of his plans to bomb the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. Michael Fortier revealed that McVeigh had chosen the date, and Lori Fortier testified that she had created the false identification card McVeigh used to rent the rider truck. McVeigh was represented by a team of six principal attorneys led by Stephen Jones. According to law professor Douglas O. Linder, McVeigh wanted Jones to present a necessity defense, which would argue that he was in imminent danger from the government, that his bombing was intended to prevent future crimes by the government, such as the Waco and Ruby Ridge incidents. McVeigh argued that imminent does not mean immediate. If a comet is hurling toward the Earth and it's out past the orbit of Pluto, it's not an immediate threat to Earth, but it's an imminent threat. Despite McVeigh's wishes, Jones attempted to discredit the prosecution's case in an attempt to instill reasonable doubt. Jones was beloved. Jones also believed that McVeigh was part of the larger conspiracy, sought to present him as the designated patsy. But McVeigh disagreed with Jones, arguing that the rationale for his defense. After a hearing, Judge Mash independently ruled the evidence concerning a larger conspiracy to be too insubstantial to be admissible. In addition to arguing that the bombing could not have been carried out by two men alone, Jones also attempted to create reasonable doubt by arguing that no one had seen McVeigh near the scene of the crime and that the investigation into the bombing had lasted only two weeks. Jones presented 25 witnesses, including Frederick Whitehurst, over a one-week period. Although Whitehurst described the FBI's sloppy investigation of the bombing site and its handling of other key evidence, he was unable to point any direct evidence that he knew to be contaminated. Um, so, this, this whole thing is with... Um, with trials you are guilty you have to be found guilty by with no reasonable doubt um, so by him proving a reasonable doubt he would then get the case dismissed but that's not going to happen um Let's see. A key point of contention in the case was the unmatched left leg found after the bombing. Although it was initially believed to be from a male, it was later determined to belong to Lakeisha Levy, a female member of the Air Force who was killed in the bombing. Levy's coffin had to be reopened so her leg could 
replace another unmatched leg that had previously been buried with her remains. The unmatched leg had been embalmed, which prevented authorities from being able to extract DNA to determine its owner. Jones argued that the leg could have belonged to another bomber, possibly John Doe No. 2. Prosecution disputed the claim, saying that the leg could have belonged to any one of eight victims who had been buried without a left leg. Numerous damaging leaks, which appeared to originate from conversations between McVeigh and his defense attorneys, emerged. They included a confession said to have been inadvertently included on a computer disk that was given to the press, which McVeigh believed seriously compromised his chances of getting a fair trial. A gag order was imposed during the trial, prohibiting attorneys on either side from commenting to the press on the evidence, proceedings, or opinions regarding the trial proceedings. The defense was allowed to enter the evidence six pages into evidence six pages of a 517-page Justice Department report criticizing the FBI crime, crime laboratory and David Williams, one of the agency's explosive experts, for reaching unscientific and biased conclusions. The report claimed that Williams had worked backward in the investigation in the investigation rather than basing his determinations on forensic evidence. The jury deliberated for 23 hours. On June 2, 1997, McVeigh was found guilty on 11 counts of murder and conspiracy. Although the defense argued for a reduced sentence of life imprisonment, McVeigh was sentenced to death. In May 2001, the Justice Department announced that the FBI had mistakenly failed to provide over 3,000 documents to McVeigh's defense counsel. The Justice Department also announced that the execution would be postponed for one month for the defense to review the documents. On June 6, federal judge Richard Paul Mosh ruled the documents would not prove McVeigh innocent and ordered the execution to proceed. McVeigh invited conductor David Woodard to perform pre-requiem mass music on the eve of his execution. While reproachful of McVeigh's capital wrongdoing, Woodard consented. After President George W. Bush proved the, approved the execution, McVeigh was a federal inmate and federal law dictates that the president must approve the execution of federal prisoners. He was executed by lethal injection at the Federal Correctional Complex Terry Haught in Terry Haught, Indiana, on June 11, 2001. Execution was transmitted on a closed-circuit television so that the relatives of the victims could witness his death. McVeigh's execution was the first federal execution in 38 years. Too bad they couldn't bring him back and do it again. Yeah, done it. Yeah. Um, Terry Nichols stood trial twice. He was first tried by federal government in 97, found guilty of conspiring to build a weapon of mass destruction and of eight counts of involuntary manslaughter of federal officers. After he was sentenced on June 4, 1998 to life without parole, State of Oklahoma in 2000 sought a death penalty conviction on 161 counts of first-degree murder, 168 non-federal agent victims, and one fetus. On May 26, 2004, the jury found him guilty on all charges but deadlocked on the issue of sentencing him to death. Presiding Judge Stephen W. Taylor then determined the sentence of 161 consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. March 2005, FBI investigators acting on a tip from Gregory Scarpa Jr. searched a a buried crawl space in Nichols' former house and found additional explosive mist in the preliminary search after Nichols was arrested. Michael and Lori Fortier were considered accomplices for their foreknowledge of the planning of the bombing. 
in addition to Michael Fortier's assisting McVeigh in scouting the federal building. Lori Fortier had helped McVeigh laminate the fake driver's license that was later used to rent the rider truck. Michael Fortier agreed to testify against McVeigh and Nichols in exchange for a reduced sentence and immunity for his wife. He was sentenced on May 27, 1998 to 12 years in prison and fined $75,000 for failing to warn authorities about the attack. On January 20, 2006, Fortier was released from prison, transferred into the Witness Protection Program, and given, given a new identity. Um, and I think that's where we're going to end this, because the rest of this goes into conspiracy theories and things like that. Um, and I don't think we need to get into the conspiracy theory parts. I mean, there's really not too much other than the, the, the supposedly second man, but I mean, you're asking a lot of it's also based on witnesses of people who saw something literally moments before the bomb came went off so it's i'm not saying that they're lying i think they could be mistaken about it you know literally these are people who lived through probably one of the most traumatic events of it and they're and as the judge said there's just not enough evidence for a larger conspiracy that this is a larger conspiracy against the federal government mostly because I mean nothing after Oklahoma City there really wasn't any other kind of follow up attacks or any copycat attacks and now I think I think this was all uh, Terry Nichols um, Timothy McVeigh although interesting enough Terry Nichols is actually ratted out by Greg Scarpa Jr., which is uh, the son of a very notorious uh, uh, New York mobster, Greg Scarpa uh, Sr., also known as Grim Reaper. Uh, this is probably one of the few times the Mafia would give one of their members a pass for working with the, fed with the federal government. Because, I mean, again, fuck Terry Nichols. Yeah, so... With that, that is it. Um, so we want to thank everybody for watching um, or listening. Thank you for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Um, please remember to turn in your glasses, push in your seat, and as always, tip the bard. Have a good night, everybody. Good night.